Good morning, Church. Um, the scripture reading is in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleases, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Thanks, Ben. Good morning, everyone. Good to be here with you today. We have been going through for a couple months now the book of Ephesians together. And one of the things about Ephesians that is interesting is the first half of the book, it's telling us all about God and what he has done to rescue and save his people and his huge, big, expansive plans for the entire universe. How he is going to one day set everything right across the entire universe. And he's inviting you and me to be part of that plan. He's inviting you and me to be part of that rescue mission he's on to make everything right in the universe. And he's inviting you and me to join him in that work today. And in the second half of the book, Paul just jumps in and he says, okay, here is what it looks like for you and me to join God in this work today. If we really want to be part of what God's doing in the world, here's how you do it. And then he goes on for several chapters just talking about having right relationships with one another. Things like don't steal from one another, don't lie to one another, treat one another properly, forgive one another. And he, he starts out talking about generally how we're all supposed to relate to one another. But last week and this week, we've been seeing that he's been zeroing in on some specific relationships and what it looks like to live properly within those relationships. And this is really important because having proper relationships is a huge part of what it looks like for us today to be joining God in this huge rescue mission for the world. And so last week we looked at what does it look like for husbands and wives to treat each other properly. If you want to listen to that, we have it on our website, thebridgechurch.hk. You can go on there and download it and listen to it. But today we have two more specific relationships that Paul's going to talk to us about. Kids and parents and slaves and masters. And I know the passage says bond servants. The Greek word literally means slaves. And I know that's incredibly offensive to us. And we're probably like, how, how could Paul dream of giving instructions to slaves rather than just saying slavery needs to end? We're going to talk about that but we're going to just go through the passage in order. So you'll have to wait to hear the answer to that, but it's coming. So you can pay attention knowing that that's going to, that's going to come up. And what we're going to see today is that a proper relationship with God 
leads to proper relationships with one another. And we'll look at instructions for kids, for fathers, for slaves, for masters, and then the key to obedience. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us who you are. Thank you for this invitation to join you in the work that you're doing in the world. And I pray that you'd be showing us today clearly who you are, how you call us to live in response to you, that you'd be giving us hope and joy to be the people that you've called us to be, and that we would respond with obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So first off, we have instructions for kids, and we actually have two instructions for kids here. First, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, that's one, obey your parents, and then two, honor your father and mother. So obey and honor, is there a difference between the two? Yes. Obeying them is doing what they tell you to do. Honoring them is giving them the love and respect that they deserve as parents. And I think when we're younger, these two things typically go hand in hand, right? Like if you're a child or if you're a teenager living under your parents' roof, one of the primary ways that you show honor to your parents is by obeying them. You show honor to your parents by doing the things that they tell you to do when they tell you to do it. I mean, theoretically, it's possible for them to be like, go clean your room. And you go clean your room and the whole time you're like, mom, dad, such terrible people. How dare they tell me to do this? Like, okay, then you're obeying, but not honoring. But generally, obedience is one of the primary ways that children show honor to their parents. So teens, when your parents tell you to do your homework, when your parents tell you to clean your room, when your parents tell you to do whatever it is that your parents may tell you to do, to be obedient to this passage, to be obedient to God, means being obedient to your parents. Okay? Parents, you're welcome. And it's not just one parent, it's both parents. It's not like, oh, I obey mom so I can ignore dad. No, God has given you the parents that you have and he expects you to obey them and to honor them. But as we get older, there's more of a, a separation, I think, between obeying and honoring. Like we saw last week that when we get married, we're called to leave our father and mother and cling to our spouse. And so that means there comes a point in your life where your parents don't have that same level of authority to expect complete obedience from you that they once had when you were three years old. And definitely we see from the passage last week that comes when we get married. I think culturally there's a bit of a, a gradual transition where you know, when, when teens move out of their parents' house, their parents typically don't have the same level of authority over them. Um, but the fact that we don't always need to obey them at that same level doesn't mean that we're free to stop honoring them when we become adults. We're all, no matter how old we get, we're always called to honor our parents. Even if you're an adult, even if you're a full-grown adult with grandkids of your own, if your parents are still alive, you're still called to honor them. So what does that mean practically? To honor your parents. It's going to look different probably for each family, but I think at the core of it for everyone is going to be having a close enough relationship with your parents that you know what's happening with them, that you know how they receive love and respect. At the very least, if they're open to it, having open lines of communication with them so you can know what's happening in their lives. As your parents get older, it means making sure they're provided for, not just financially, not just physically, but emotionally. 
socially? Are, are your parents having enough interaction with people? Are you contributing to that interaction? It, it means not just putting them on a, away in a home and forgetting that they exist, not treating them in a way that says you're a burden to us, but actually demonstrating through your actions that you love and value your parents. Not because they can contribute to the family financially or through helping with different things, but just because of who they are, that you love them, that you care about them, that you value them, that they're important to you. And so what does it look like for you to treat your parents in that way, in a way that says, I value you, I respect you, I honor you, I demonstrate that in tangible ways in the way that I interact with you and treat you. We see in this passage that God has designed the world so that when we obey and honor our parents this way, it leads to blessing for us. He says, if you honor your father and mother, it will go well with you and you may live long in the land. Now that's a promise to the community, not to each specific individual. He's not saying every single person who obeys and honors their parents is gonna live till 80 plus and be free of heart disease and cancer. But he's saying, if you as a community honor and obey your parents, what's gonna happen? Crime rates are gonna go down. Violence is gonna go down. People are gonna be hard workers. People are gonna have the provisions they need for life. People are gonna treat each other well. You're gonna experience prosperity. Things are gonna go well with you and you're gonna live a long time as a people. Like the, the average life expectancy of your community is going to go up when this happens. Now, to what extent do I need to obey my parents? Like, what if my parents aren't Christians? Do I still need to obey them? Well, we see in verse one that he says, obey your parents in the Lord. We obey our parents, if we're Christians, because we trust in Jesus. Which means if your parents command you to do something sinful, you should not obey them because your loyalty to God comes first. So I know this is an extreme example, but it's a true example. I once would live, uh, worked with a guy. When he was 13, his dad had arranged for this girl down the street to sleep with him so he could become a man. And the week before this was supposed to happen, my friend became a Christian. And so his dad told him, it's time for you to go sleep with this girl. And he had to be like, no, that's not happening. Right? Because his loyalty to God, his respect for God came first before his loyalty to his parents. Now, does that mean that my friend was now exempt from having to obey and honor his parents from then on because they gave him a, a command that was wrong? No, not at all. He's still commanded to obey his parents because they're his parents, not because they're great spiritual role models, not because they always tell him to do the right thing, but because God has put them in his life as his parents. To the extent that you can obey your parents, whether they're Christian or not, without disobeying God, God calls for us to obey our parents. So that's the instructions for kids. How about the parents? We see in verse four, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, does anyone notice something weird about this? No one? He says, children obey your parents. And then he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now what's going on here? Is he just talking to fathers? You know, this word fathers actually can apply to fathers and mothers, depending on the context. But in this immediate context, we have three different words that he's already used. One for parents generally, one for fathers specifically, not mothers, and one for mothers specifically, not fathers. 
And so there are three words in this context he could choose from right here for addressing parents. And he chooses the one that he's just used to refer to fathers, not mothers. So in certain contexts, this word can mean fathers and mothers. I think here he's primarily speaking to fathers. And why would he speak primarily to fathers here? One, because I think as a general rule, with lots of exceptions, in most homes, this is going to be more applicable to fathers than to mothers. And two, because biblically, fathers have the primary responsibility for leading in their home. And so he's addressing them primarily. But if you're a mom, all of this still applies to you. You still need to listen, still pay attention, still learn from what he has to say to you. And what's the command? Do not provoke your children to anger. Now, if you're a father in here, you do not need to put your hands up, but I'm pretty sure every father in here, probably most of the moms too, have at some point in time done something that made your children angry. I see some nods from the moms on behalf of their husbands. So is that what Paul is saying, that you must never do anything that makes your child angry? I don't think that's quite what he's getting at. Because sometimes your children get angry because you're trying to get them to do the right thing and they just don't want to do it, right? So what is he talking about here? Well, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word provoke to anger, it's used again and again and again to refer to what the Israelites did to God when they worshiped idols. When Israel worshiped idols, they provoked God to anger. Now, what does that tell us about what it means for parents to provoke their children to anger. Well, when Israel worshiped idols, they were doing something wrong that they weren't supposed to do. They did it over and over and over and over again. They did not learn from their mistakes and it drew out this emotional reaction and response from God. Dads and moms too, but primarily dads. How many times have you treated your child in a way that was not necessary and that drew out a negative emotional response from them of anger? It's okay. It happens. It's part of being a parent. It happens. But, and it could be for a number of reasons. It could be that we're extra harsh with them. It could be that we just don't leave room for the fact that they're young and they don't understand how the world works like an adult would. It could be that we play favorites and put something else ahead of them. It could be that we treat them in ways that humiliate them. It could be so many different reasons. These things happen. And when they happen, you and I as fathers and the mothers among us, we have an opportunity to learn from that. We have an opportunity to recognize what I did was wrong. I'm sorry. I'm going to learn from that. I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to treat you better in the future. But too often, we actually don't do that. We don't learn from our mistakes. We keep doing the same thing, keep repeating the same patterns over and over and over, and it leads to anger, not just to our kids becoming angry once, but to anger being sort of the primary defining emotion that they feel when they think about us. We're pushing them, and that anger can turn into bitterness in their hearts that builds a wall between us, that ruins the relationship. Like I know full-grown adults who refuse to speak to their parents because of the way their parents treated them when they were kids. Because these patterns of provoking to anger happened again and again and again, and they let it destroy their relationship with their child. 
And Paul's saying, God does not want that in our relationships with our kids. He wants the family to be a place of love, a place of respect, a place of honor. He doesn't want moms or dads to treat their children in a way that provokes them to anger. But again, as a general rule, dads are more prone to doing this. And so Paul is specifically addressing them. And so dads, when you hear this command, do not provoke your children to anger, and you think about how easy it is for you to act in ways that provoke your children to anger, what's like the first instinctual response that you feel in terms of here's what I'm going to do to make sure I don't provoke my children to anger? Anyone feel like, okay, if that's the case, the best thing is just keep my distance. If I don't interact with them, I won't make them angry. If I stay in the background, just let mom run things and sort of be there, but not be too involved, then I'm safe. I'm not going to be building these walls up in that relationship. That might be a common tendency that a lot of men would turn to in order to avoid provoking our children to wrath or anger. And Paul says, that's not an option either. Don't provoke your children to anger, but don't just step back and avoid them. You actually are, he says, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We as fathers are to be completely hands-on in bringing up our children. That's what Paul is saying right here. We're called to guide them in the way they should go, to be incredibly, incredibly intentional in that process. Like keeping track of the emotional response that our instruction draws out of our kids so we can be sure we're actually being constructive in the way we interact with them, pointing them in the right direction. When we do make mistakes, because that's gonna happen, when we do treat them in ways that make them angry, learning to apologize, learning from those mistakes so we don't let those things become a pattern. And dads and moms, this is really, really hard. Raising our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, it's not about just getting them to memorize a bunch of Bible verses or facts about God. It's about teaching our children to live with a constant awareness of God's presence and goodness in their lives. One commentator said that, that this, these two words, discipline and instruction, discipline is about practical skill. Instruction is about information. It's not just filling their heads with the right knowledge. It's, it's making sure that knowledge is connected to them deeply enough that they live in response to that. It's not even just about presenting them with the information. You know, in ancient Israel, if you were a teacher, they considered that your job as a teacher was not done until your student had learned the information that you were trying to teach them, right? In schools today, teachers give a lecture, write stuff out on the, on the board, and then the kids are basically responsible for learning it on their own. And as long as the teacher has spoken the words or written them on the board or assigned the reading, their job is done. In ancient Israel, your job was not done until your student had demonstrated that they had learned the material. And so you had to put in work to be a teacher because it was on you to make sure that they figured out what they were supposed to know. I had a friend, he was going through a really rough season of life. He was making really bad choices and just harming himself and people around him. And his dad was a leader in his church. And I got a chance to catch up with this friend. I was talking with him. It sounded like he could see the choices I've made are harmful, destructive. I don't want to keep making them, but I don't know how to make better choices. 
And I asked him, like, is this something you could talk to your dad about? He's a leader in the church. Like, would he be able to help you navigate what you're going through? My friend said, you know, I've, I've tried that. Whenever I try that, my dad just says, well, the Bible says don't do this, so just stop. Despite the fact that the dad was a leader in the church, despite the fact that he could quote the Bible, he wasn't doing this level of instruction in his son's life. He thought the information was enough, but it's not. If we're really gonna be the parents that God calls us to be, it requires being hands-on, engaged with our kids, involved in not just teaching them information, but helping them learn practical skills. It's hard work. Parents, God has a huge job for you. You as parents are the primary ones responsible for teaching your kids how to follow God and live properly in his world. Yes, you absolutely need help from the school and the church and friends, but all these outside resources can never replace you and the unique role God has called you to play in your parents' life. And one of the biggest things that you can do to help your kids learn this is model it for them in your own life. There's a Christian sociologist named Christian Smith, and he once said, when it comes to teens' faith, parents get what they are. When it comes to teens' faith, parents get what they are. As a general rule, with lots of exceptions, if you want to know what your faith in Jesus looks like, look what your teenager's faith in Jesus looks like because it's probably a reflection of yours. If you want your kids to be serious about following Jesus, it's not enough to just send them to church, send them to Sunday school, send them to youth group, send them to a Christian school. Those things, they're helpful, hopefully, but they're not enough. You need to be modeling for them what it looks like to love Jesus, to trust in Jesus, how important he is to you. You need to be talking with your kids about your faith. You need to be having conversations with them to help them think through how does Jesus impact the way that I approach the different situations that I face every single day. And that's not easy. It takes time. It takes creativity. It takes patience. It takes imagination. It's not something that we can just sort of do in our spare time. It's something that we need to prioritize. And yes, again, we're going to make mistakes along the way, but that's why we have God's grace. And if you're here and you're like, Eric, this sounds great, but I don't even know where to start with this. That's why we have a church community. That's why we have people around us who are going through the same things we're going through so we can talk with them and share with them and learn from them and encourage one another and, and help each other try to figure out how to do this so that our kids can be put on the right path of knowing and following God. But caring for our kids, loving them, teaching them how to follow Jesus should never be an afterthought. It should never be outsourced. It's a job that God has given to you as a parent, but it's a hard one, huh? Okay, that's enough for parents, you think? Ready for a break? Let's move on to a different kind of difficult, slaves. Now I know the Bible, again, it says bond servants, but the Greek word means slaves, people who belong to other people as property. And slavery is illegal in our world. It's probably offensive to most of us. And so we're going to split the instructions for slaves into two parts. First, why does Paul bother giving instructions to slaves instead of just abolishing slavery? And then second, since we don't have slavery in our world, what does this mean for us? Okay. So first, why give instructions rather than abolish? Second, what does it mean for us? 
So that first question, why does Paul give instructions for slaves instead of just abolishing slavery? And a lot of these thoughts in this section come from a guy named John Stott. And he points out several reasons that Paul didn't just abolish slavery. First, when we think of slavery, at least for me, and I'm guessing for most of us, what we think of is probably the African-American slave trade in the USA. Is that what most of us think of? No? A lot of us do. And slavery in the ancient world was quite different from that. It was still horrible. It still involved people being the property of other people. It still left the slaves incredibly vulnerable, open to abuse and mistreatment. But unlike slavery in the USA, you couldn't stand on the street and point like that person's a slave, that person's a slave, that person's a slave. Because slavery existed on across ethnic groups, it existed on pretty much every economic level of society except among the most wealthy, right? Billionaires didn't become slaves. But people like you and me, we could have become slaves in the ancient world. Um, it was often a financial thing to become a slave. You'd, maybe you'd be in debt, and so you'd sell yourself or you sell your child to get money to pay off that debt and better yourself financially. Sometimes for some people, selling yourself as a slave was an opportunity to get an education. Um, slaves were not just kept to doing menial tasks. Many slaves were very well educated and would do very important jobs for the families they worked for. Like there were people who were sold as slaves so they could become doctors, right? Like that type of thing. Um, and it's, it's kind of like, not exactly the same, but similar to in the USA, if you want to go to university, it's very expensive. And so the US government was like, we'll make you a deal. If you join the military and you commit to give us X number of years of your life, we will pay that bill for you so you can go to university. And so you sign up for the military, you serve with them as you study, and then when you graduate, you give them, what, four, six, eight more years of your life where they can tell you, you need to go stand in front of this guy who's just firing a machine gun at you. And, and you, you have to obey, right? It's, it's not slavery, but I mean, if they can tell you to stand in front of a guy shooting a machine gun at you, it's not much better, right? You've, you've sold the rights to be in control of your life for a certain amount of time so that you can advance yourself and better yourself for your future. Or in Hong Kong, have any of you ever known someone who went through a medical internship and residency here? It's insane. They're working like 80 to 100 hour weeks on the weeks where they don't have to work weekends. They've, and they've basically said, I'm gonna give away the right to be in control of my life for this amount of time. Give my boss the ability to tell me you're not allowed to sleep tonight. You're not allowed to have a weekend off this week. I just have to do what my boss tells me all the time because I know that by doing this, I'm improving my future, right? Again, the interns and residents in the hospitals here, they're not slaves, but the system actually isn't that crazy different from what slavery looked like for many people in the ancient world. Uh, in the ancient world, slaves could own property, including other slaves of their own. They could save up money so that they could buy their freedom. And many slaves actually by the age of 30 were able to purchase their freedom so they could go out, live their own lives. Many slaves actually became more wealthy than their former masters. So on that level, slavery was very different than slavery 
in our world. Um, also, slavery in the ancient world, it was everywhere. Many people in the ancient world, they couldn't imagine life operating without slavery. It, it never crossed their mind that there could be anything wrong with slavery because it was all they knew. And because it was so widespread, because it was often a financial thing that people became slaves, if Paul had just said, masters, set your slaves free, most of the slaves would have been sent to unemployment, hunger, homelessness, debtors, prisons, or death, right? Like maybe long-term it would have fixed things and made things better, but in the short to medium term, it would have made things far worse for so many people across society to simply blow up that system. And so it was different than it is today. It was widespread. People couldn't imagine a different way of living. It would have actually caused a lot of harm for a lot of people to just end slavery on the spot. And then also, as Paul wrote, Christianity was a tiny movement, right? It was actually still illegal to be a Christian at this point. Christians had zero political power. Even if Paul had said, Christians, release your slaves, that would have been a drop in the bucket compared to what was happening across the world. It would be like if, if we as the Bridge Church were like, we're going to do something to try and change the way it's done all the way across Hong Kong, right? This can be a starting point, but if you're trying to make big changes in the way things work in Hong Kong, this probably isn't the group that you choose to start it with, right? I mean, I love you guys. You're awesome. I'm going to stop talking now. But what does Paul do here? He does something far more subtle and actually far more effective at ending slavery long-term. He doesn't, if you think of slavery as like a brick wall, he doesn't put a stick of dynamite in there and blow it up. He plants a seed in there. And as the seed sprouts and sends down its roots, those roots are gonna tear the wall apart from the inside out so that it's unable to stand anymore because this tree is here. And how does he do that? Well, first in verse nine, he says that we're all equal, that we all have the same master in heaven and there is no partiality with him. God doesn't play favorites. Society may look with more respect on the master than on the slave, but to God, we're all people. We're all equal. So there's no grounds for dehumanizing someone to make you feel better about yourself or more powerful about yourself. Second, again, in verse nine, he says, masters do the same to them. Treat them in the same way that you expect them to treat you. However you want your slave to treat you, you need to treat them, which destroys any type of master-slave hierarchy. And then he's already told us in Ephesians chapter two that if we are Christians, we all share God as our father. If you share the same father as someone, what does that make you? Not a trick question. If you share the same father, that makes you brothers and sisters. I think most people are probably offended by the idea of owning their sibling as a slave. And yet Paul says, if we are Christians and the slave is Christians, then you are owning your sibling when you own them as a slave. That makes slavery just not possible, at least for Christians. And then fourth, Paul says, yes, slaves need to obey their masters, but one, the master has a higher master, and two, the slave himself has a higher master above their human master, God. Their primary allegiance is not to their master who owns them, it's to God. That upsets the whole order of society. 
Paul knows that once people think through the implications of the gospel in regards to slavery, there's no more room for it. But he's being patient. He's letting change happen like a seed, not like a stick of dynamite. And I think there's one big thing you and I can take away from from just this reflection on the question of slavery in the ancient world. And that is, living in our world, we can clearly see that slavery is wrong. We can clearly see if we're Christians that slavery is opposed to the gospel, that it dehumanizes people, that it's terrible. People in Paul's day, they couldn't see that because it was all they knew. And that blinded them to seeing the way that slavery dehumanizes people and dishonors God. And so what are the things in our world that are wrong, that are opposed to the gospel, that are opposed to the way God wants us to treat one another, but we can't see it because it's all we know? What are the ways that people in Hong Kong are just dehumanized that we don't even think twice about because we think it's normal? Because we can't imagine anything different. And once we identify those things, how is God calling you and me to be his instruments of change in those areas? I think we have something very important to learn from what Paul has to say about slavery as a, as a system here. It challenges us and the things that we take for granted in our world. But he also gives instructions to the slaves. And since there's no more legalized slavery in our world, what does this mean for us? Well, remember, a slave was someone who worked for someone else because they belonged to that other person as property. And Paul says, if that's you, if you belong to another person as property, do your job wholeheartedly as if you were working for God. Now, if that's what's expected of a slave who has no choice but to obey, that they're to try to work their best for their earthly masters as if they were working from God, how much more should you and I do these things in our work when we have the freedom to choose who we work for? Like really, if you look at the job you have right now and you think, I, I cannot work with that attitude for my current boss, my current company. My heart's just not in it. You realize you have the freedom to like quit and get another job, right? If we have that freedom, it may not pay as much as our current job. It may not give us as much power and prestige as our current job. But we have the ability to choose a job that we believe in, where we can do things that, that we can do wholeheartedly. And God wants Christians to be the absolute best workers possible in our workplaces. If he expected it of slaves who had no choice, how much more does he expect it of you and me who do have a choice? To be people who sell advertising space and newspaper subscriptions as if we're selling them for Jesus to fly airplanes and and steward airplanes as if Jesus was our VIP passenger, to cook meals for the family as if Jesus was going to sit down at the table with us and eat them, to play music as if Jesus was in the audience, to do law and business and, and study as if we were studying for Jesus, not for teachers or bosses or humans. Whatever job you do, God wants you to do it as well as you can. He wants you to do it as if you're doing it for him, not for any earthly boss or earthly master. So that's what he tells the slaves. And then he also has instructions for the masters. In the ancient world and the modern, I think there's an expectation. The people in power are going to do what they want. And who's more powerful than a slave master? Like literally other human beings belong to them as property. As a slave master, whatever you say to do, they have to obey you. They don't get a choice. And yet Paul steps in and he puts huge 
restrictions on the master's use of power. He calls for the masters to stop threatening their slaves. Don't just be harsh and scare people into obedience. He says, treat them in verse nine, do the same to them. However you want them to treat you, you treat them that way. Treat them as if they have equal value and worth to you because in God's eyes, they do. And this instruction has big implications for Christian bosses and for Christians generally. If you're a boss or an employer and you're a Christian, we are called to treat our employees with respect. We're not to aim for good performance through harshness and threats. We're to love our employees. We're to treat them as our equals. Even if they report to us in the company and we have authority over them in that way, we're to love them, care for them, treat them the way that we want them to treat us. And as you do this, remember, you have a boss that you report to as well. Not just the next person up on the corporate hierarchy, but God. God is watching the way that you treat your employees and he's gonna hold you accountable for that. And for Christians generally, these verses, they provide a rule that we can't look down on anyone, no matter their status, no matter any details about them, we cannot look down on them as unimportant or less valuable than anyone else. Last week, we looked at a quote where C.S. Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. We're all made in God's image. We're all on a path to being eternally glorious or eternally horrible. And we're called to intentionally treat one another in ways that emphasize their value, that point them towards that path to glory so that they can be on it and grow and become who God made them to be. So those are the instructions for kids, for fathers, for slaves, for masters. And now we just go do them, right? We know what to do. Let's go do it. Yay. Here's the problem. Does anyone actually want to do those things? Like if you're in a position where you're under authority, if you're in that child or employee worker stage, we don't really like obeying and honoring those in authority over us, right? Like they make our lives difficult. They often keep us from doing the things we want to do. We feel like by listening to them and obeying them, we're actually giving up on our right to pursue the good life. And if we've worked our way up, if we've gotten to that position of power, we want the right to use that authority however we want to, right? I mean, we don't want to lay it down to serve the people beneath us. We want to advance ourselves, especially if we were treated harshly on the way up. Now it's my chance. I get to be as mean to them as, as my bosses were to me when I was younger. It's my turn to get my way. Why, who in their right mind would give up that right? But God says, if we obey these commands, it leads to blessing. Children who obey their parents have it go well with them. They live long lives in the land. Slaves who serve their masters well, he says in verse eight, that they will be repaid by God himself. Parents who parent properly, you're gonna be far more likely to end up with good kids who contribute to society and who you actually enjoy being around when they become adults. Doesn't every parent want that? To like look forward to hanging out with your kid once they're 30? Masters who treat their slaves well, they're gonna be well treated by their master in heaven and they're probably gonna get better work from their employees here on earth. Our obedience leads to blessing. But we don't believe that's really true. That's why we don't obey. If we really believed that obedience led to blessing, we would obey. The fact that we don't obey means we don't think that obedience really leads to blessing, but it's true. But there was one person whose obedience didn't lead to blessing. 
See, the Bible tells us Jesus is the only begotten son of God. He obeyed his father perfectly. And what happened because of his obedience? He died. In Isaiah 53, we're told that Jesus is a servant or a slave. As a slave, he obeyed God, his master, perfectly. Deserves blessing, right? But what happened? He died. In Isaiah 9, Jesus is called the everlasting father. And in the New Testament, he's repeatedly called Lord, which is the same Greek word as master in this passage. As father and Lord, as the one who created the whole world, who has all authority, how did he use that authority? He used it to lay down his authority and serve those underneath him. And he died. In every role that Paul addresses in today's passage, where he says obedience leads to blessing. Jesus obeyed perfectly and he got the curse. Why? You know why? It's because you and I, day after day, fail. We disobey. We dishonor our parents. We get lazy in our work. We treat those under our authority harshly. And we deserve a punishment for that. And Jesus, in his love for us, he stepped in and took our place so that we can be forgiven. And because Jesus, who deserved the blessing, got the curse, you and I, who deserve the curse, can get the blessings. And when we see the gift that he's given us, it changes us. It shows us that obedience truly is the path to blessing. It leads us to obey. It's only by seeing Jesus and how he actually fulfills the commands of this passage perfectly so that he can pay the price for our failure that we're going to have the energy and the power that we need to be able to obey. So church, a proper relationship with God calls for proper relationships with one another. It's not easy. It takes a lot of work. It, it's quite hard, but the gospel gives us the strength to lay down our rights, to obey God, and to seek to practically love and serve one another in whatever role God has placed us in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not silent. That you're a God who speaks, who tells us who you are and who you call us to be in response to you. And Father, we confess that we have failed over and over and over and over again to be the people that you've called us to be. But we thank you for Jesus, our perfect substitute who took our place, who bore the penalty that we deserve and who gives us another chance. So I pray that this week you would help us to obey and honor our parents, to not provoke our children to anger, but to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, to do our jobs with our whole hearts as if we're doing them for you and not for human bosses. I pray that you would help us to treat those under our authority with kindness and humility. I pray that as we do these things, you would be honored and the people around us would see there's something different about them and would have a desire to know you through the way that they see us live in. In Jesus' name, amen.